Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome back to Dark Poutine. I'm Mike Brown, creator and host across the table. Again, Matthew. Say moi. Say you. Foggy today. It is foggy today. It was spooky walking here. It was spooky. Yeah. Walking all the way from the sky train. Yeah. Yeah. It's like three blocks <laughs> in, in the daytime. <laughs> Matthew's terrified. The views, information, and opinions expressed during the Dark Poutine podcast are solely those of the producer and do not necessarily represent those of Curious Cast, its affiliate, Global News, nor their parent company, Chorus Entertainment. Dark Poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. Our content is often intense and some listeners may find it disturbing. We are not experts on the topics we present, nor are we journalists. We are ordinary Canadian schmucks chatting about crime and the dark side of history. Let's get to it. Put on your toque. Grab yourself a double-double and an Nanaimo bar. It's time to scarf down some dark poutine. Ultra fresh, ultra tasty, DP Ultra. This is another story that I've wanted to tackle for quite a while. It perplexes me. Not that it happened. Sadly, that's not shocking at all. There have been over the years a lot of books and articles written, documentaries shot, and podcasts made about the topic we're presenting here in this episode. The fact that it doesn't garner more public outrage is what really doesn't make sense to me. Between 1957 and 1964 in Montreal, Quebec, Experiments were undertaken that compromised and invaded people's minds. Their agency to make decisions for themselves was removed, and their brains mucked about in, both physically and psychologically. These barbaric Orwellian experiments often involved mind-expanding drugs like LSD, sensory deprivation, shock treatments, and periods of sleep induced for weeks and months at a time, as well as other treatments that could easily be called torturous. They were sponsored by the most notorious branch of the United States government, the CIA, the Canadian government, as well as other shadowy organizations with funding coming from even the Rockefellers. The goals behind the research, it seems, were to develop brainwashed, zombie-like recruits who could do the bidding of these groups without question or conscience getting in the way, and to come up with new ways of psychological torture to aid in enemy interrogation. A lot of this took place right here in Canada. The research was overseen by Dr. Donald Ewan Cameron, an eminent and well-respected psychiatrist at McGill University's Allen Memorial Institute, with unwitting Canadian psychiatric patients used as guinea pigs. You are listening to Dark Poutine episode 204, Mind Control at Ravenscraig, the MK Ultra Experiments in Canada. 
A lot of what I read around this topic sounds like conspiracy theorist musings. Perhaps that's why some people tune it out, but it really happened. The thousands of pages of declassified government documents prove the truthfulness of claims made by former patients. The amount of information I was able to uncover in a brief time searching is enough on which I could write an entire book, let alone a single episode of this podcast. It is truly the stuff of nightmares in which, perhaps, well-meaning scientists perform some dark experiments on everyday people with the aim of serving the greater good, whatever the heck that means. Oh my God, I loathe that term so much, the greater good. Why? It's always used by people who think they know what, first of all, they think they know what the greater good is. Mm -hmm. And often people who have a sense of superiority over everybody else, right? Yeah. Or it's used by governments to do whatever they want to do. Yeah. So for me, the government should only exist to secure and protect the rights of the individuals. For me, government should only exist to secure and protect the rights of the individual. For me, that's the greater good, right? Mm -hmm. And um, a government is legitimate only when this is its sole function. So you don't agree with Spock from Wrath of Khan when he said, uh, the good of the many outweighs the needs of the few or the one. Spock was a commie. Oh boy. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> yeah, I know a bit about this story, not as much as I'd like to, so I guess I'm going to learn from the show today. Mm -hmm. um, but from what I saw, the rights of the individual were not even considered in this program. Yeah, yeah. I don't think they were. Some see Dr. Cameron as a monster akin to the likes of Mary Shelley's Dr. Frankenstein. More extreme comparisons have been made between Cameron and the Nazi doctor of the Auschwitz concentration camp, Joseph Mengele. He had been responsible for his cruel and unthinkable experiments on prisoners in the camp at the time, justified by the Nazi idea that those housed there were untermensch, less than human. Born in 1901 in Bridge of Allen, Scotland, the oldest son of a Presbyterian minister, Donald Ewan Cameron, was not just some clown with no credibility or sketchy education. He received degrees in psychological medicine at the University of Glasgow in 1924, a doctor of physical medicine from the University of London in 1925, and an MD with distinction from the university in 1936. During the Second World War, Cameron began working for the Office of Strategic Services, OSS, one of the precursors to the CIA. It was there that Cameron became involved with Alan Dulles, eventual director of the CIA, according to Spartacus-Educational.com. Quote, Cameron continued to work for the OSS, and in November 1945, Alan Dulles sent him to Germany to examine Rudolf Hess, in order to assess if he was fit to stand trial at Nuremberg. According to one source, Dulles had told Cameron that he believed the Hess he was about to examine was not the real Hess and that he had already been executed on the orders of Winston Churchill, end quote. After the war, for Cameron, there was more study and stints at prestigious hospitals in the United States and Canada. Cameron worked at the Albany State Medical School. He developed the theory that mental patients could be cured by treatment that erased existing memories by rebuilding the psyche completely, 
It was an invite from pioneering and notable Canadian brain surgeon Dr. Wilder Penfield in 1943 that brought Cameron back to Canada, where Cameron was instrumental in establishing the psychiatry department at Montreal's McGill University and became director of the newly created Allen Memorial Institute. SAAGA.info, a site dedicated to the legal pursuit of those responsible for what happened at Ravenscrag, writes that the groundwork for MK Ultra was laid in Montreal years before its official inception in 1957. A secret meeting was held on June 1, 1951, at the Ritz-Carlton Hotel on Sherbrooke. Quote, The purpose of the meeting was to launch a joint American-British-Canadian effort led by the CIA to fund studies on sensory deprivation. In attendance was Dr. Donald Hebb, then Director of Psychology at McGill University, who received a grant of $10,000 to study sensory deprivation. The Saga.info site's brief biography of Dr. Hebb states, quote, He paid a group of his own psychology students to remain isolated in a room, deprived of all senses for an entire day. In an attempt to determine a link between sensory deprivation and the vulnerability of cognitive ability, Hebb also played recordings of voices expressing creationist or generally anti-Semitic sentiments, clearly ideas psychology students would oppose. However, the prolonged period of sensory deprivation made the students overly susceptible to sensory stimulation. Students suddenly became very tolerant of ideas that they had readily dismissed before. As a history professor at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, Alfred McCoy described in his book, A Question of Torture, that during Hebb's own experiments, quote, the subject's very identity had begun to disintegrate. One can only fathom the cognitive effects of Hebb's work, end quote. Even the venue... The Allen Memorial Institute, still in use by the University Hospital today, is creepy and imposing, complete with a relatively scary name, Ravenscrag, from McGill.ca's page on the property. In 1863, Sir Hugh Allen, the Scottish founder and president of the Allen Line Shipping Company, commissioned Victor Roy and John Hopkins to construct a house that reflected his wealth and power. This Italianate, villa-style mansion was named Ravenscrag after a Scottish castle and was located at the top of McTavish Street with an imposing view over the entire city. The house, which is divided into many wings, had an asymmetric facade dominated by a large, solid tower which dominates the main entrance. The 34-room interior featured a different architectural style in each room, the entrance hall and dining room had Italian themes, the ballroom was French, and the oak-paneled library with ornate furniture was distinctly Victorian. Since the Allens were interested in horses, the 14-acre estate possessed one of the finest stables on the Golden Square Mile, the entrance of which was marked by a sculpted horse's head. After Sir Hugh Allen died in 1882, his son and daughter-in-law, Sir Montague and Marguerite, respectively, inherited Ravenscrag. They enlarged the house, redecorated in a more elegant and lavish style, employed several live-in servants, and filled the stable with prized thoroughbreds at the request of Sir Montague, the president of the jockey club. After Sir Montague's death, Lady Allen gave Ravenscrag to the Royal Victoria Hospital in 1940, 
It was renamed the Allen Memorial Institute in 1943 to serve the present needs of the Psychiatric Hospital and Research Institute. The interior of the building has been altered and many additions have been made to the exterior. End quote. Before the MK Ultra experiments began in earnest, Dr. Cameron was president of the American Psychiatric Association between 1952 and 1953. After he began tinkering with people, he was president of Canadian Psychiatric Association between 58 and 59, president of the American Psychopathological Association in 1963, and president of the Society of Biological Psychiatry in 65. He was co-founder and president of the World Psychiatric Association from 1961 to 1966. According to some sources, Cameron truly thought that one day he might win the Nobel Prize for his work. He was obsessed with finding a cure for schizophrenia, but his research methods and some of the experiments performed were, to put it mildly, questionable. One colleague interviewed for the CBC News program The Fifth Estate in 1980 said, Cameron was a difficult man. Quote, he was an authoritarian, ruthless, power-hungry, nervous, tense, angry man. Not very nice, end quote. According to a 1986 report into Canada's involvement in MKUltra titled Opinion of George Cooper QC regarding Canadian government funding of the Allen Memorial Institute in the 1950s and 60s, more commonly referred to as the Cooper Report, Cameron was up to some off-the-chart shady psychiatric wackiness even in the years before MKUltra. Dr. Cameron held the view that mental illness was the consequence of the patients having learned over the years incorrect ways of responding to the world around him or her. The brain pathways had thus developed through repetition a set of learned responses that were not socially acceptable and resulted in the patients being classified as mentally ill. As well, it had been observed over many years by psychiatrists that persons who were subject to convulsions of the brain did not become mentally ill. According to accepted research at the time, people who suffered from epileptic convulsions and insulin coma or other brain convulsions didn't develop mental disease. This is what led to convulsive therapies including ECT, electroconvulsive or shock therapy, insulin coma shock therapy, and other therapies designed to artificially induce convulsions and essentially retrain brain pathways. Dr. Cameron thought this could be taken a step further by ramping up the number of shocks used in ECT. The maximum typically was three times per week. After a preparatory period of 10 days in which patients were induced to sleep by use of powerful sedatives for the entire duration, Cameron was applying shocks to psychotic patients in two different sessions daily over extended periods, often receiving 60 sessions over a 30-day period, during which they remained asleep. The shocks were then tapered down and the patients were then awakened, supposedly with their minds as blank as the day as they were born. Cameron called the procedure depatterning. The Cooper reports states that Cameron observed that after depatterning, patients were described as, quote, being brought to the level of four-year-old children. Sometimes patients were unable to swallow, but were capable of sucking fluid from a feeding bottle. Some patients were like helpless infants. They were incontinent in bladder and bowel and required spoon feeding as well as tube feeding, end quote. 
those now anxiety-ridden patients, without any memory of who they were nor their lives before, were sedated with various drugs, including the antipsychotic chlorpromazine and sodium amytal, a barbiturate derivative with sedative hypnotic properties, commonly misrepresented as truth serum. The next stage of the treatment was called psychic driving, which is described on pages 19 and 20 of the 1986 Cooper Report. I quote, Following a course of sensory deprivation, or of sleep and shock therapy, or both, the patient would then undergo the psychic driving procedure. This consisted of messages playing on tape recorders and repeated thousands of times to the patients by means of pillow microphones, stenographic headphones, and other methods. The idea was, first of all, to deliver a negative signal designed to get the patient to confront his or her inadequacies. For example, Gertrude, you don't get along with people. You have never gotten along with your mother. You have always felt inadequate and have been jealous of other people. This lasted for a period of about 10 days, after which positive messages would be given for about another 10 days. For example, Gertrude, you want to be free like other women. You are trying to give up manipulating people by your complaints. You want other people to like you. You want to have confidence. The content of the messages was usually determined through psychological interviews conducted with the patient before treatment began, autopsychic driving. Sometimes, while under the influence of disinhibiting drugs, LSD, in some treatments, the messages were based on material developed by the psychiatrist rather than the patient, heteropsychic driving. What about homopsychic driving? Why do you feel left out? You're like, look, Ma, no hands. Again, I put the boys on pink Cadillac and the girls in Subarus. You know that old joke. I don't know where it came from. I don't know. I think every lesbian I know owns a car named Subaru McClanahan. Moving on. <laughs> the quote continues. Psychic driving would take place for continuous periods of up to 16 hours per day. Taken together, the positive and negative messages might be repeated up to half a million times. Drugs were used throughout the procedure. Barbiturates, etc. were used during the period of prolonged sleep. As the patient emerged from depatterning, the anxiety that attended the process was relieved by heavy doses of largactyl and sodium amytal. During the psychic driving procedure, in order to keep the patient receptive to the messages, Injections of curare and beeswax would be given. LSD was sometimes also administered. Throughout the procedure and for a period of up to three years afterward, a patient would receive intensive personal care, both in and out of hospital as required, from the hospital staff, including social workers, psychiatrists, psychologists, and nurses. Further electroshocks were administered an average of 65 times during this three-year period. End quote. To Cameron, these experiments were definitely successful. More so, he wrote, than regular ECT, insulin therapy, and any other chemical treatments. He admitted that the amnesia induced was problematic, troublesome, and an annoyance to patients. But Cameron claimed that a scaffolding of subsequent memories consisting in what a patient had been told of events which happened during the amnestic period gradually takes form. 
This seems to leave out the fact that a patient's memories of their lives before the treatment were permanently erased, just like those of a formatted hard drive. Okay, did, did, you, did you pick up on what he said there? What's that? <laughs> you know, he's talking about people's memories being wiped, and he's, and he's saying it's tr they found it troublesome and an annoyance. Yeah. It's like he's so downplaying the, the effects that this had on people. Mm -hmm. And it just goes to show that he had no real, no care for the patients at all. No. Right? No. Um, and at this point, I wouldn't call them patients. I'd call them prisoners or victims. Yeah. According to Cameron's research assistant, Dr. Peter Roper, Dr. Cameron had a technician called Leonard Rubenstein who modified cassettes so there was an endless tape. It could keep repeating itself for hours at a time. If Cameron could give a positive message, eventually a patient would respond to it, said Roper. Cameron would play the tapes to his patients for up to 86 days as they slipped in and out of insulin-induced comas. As the Cold War ramped up after World War II, Western governments, seeing citizens return from behind the Iron Curtain, seemingly brainwashed, looked into ways to match what they presumed the Soviet and Chinese governments were up to. They came up with a new name, calling what had been known in Nazi Germany as worldview warfare, psychological warfare. According to the Rand Corporation, quote, psychological warfare involves the planned use of propaganda and other psychological operations to influence the opinions, emotions, attitudes, and behavior of opposition groups. Rand has studied military information support operations, MISO, in many countries and war zones and has provided objective and supportable recommendations to policymakers on methods and tactics to employ or defend against these operations, end quote. In 1957, Dr. Cameron's old pal, Alan Dulles, now director of the CIA, came calling. He was well aware of what Dr. Cameron had been up to, and he had some ideas he wanted to fund by way of research at the Allen Memorial Institute. From SpartacusEducational.com, quote, As it was illegal for the CIA to conduct operations on American soil, Cameron was forced to carry out his experiments at the Allen Memorial Institute in Canada. The CIA arranged for funding via Cornell University in New York, end quote. The project was to be called MKUltra. According to the McGill Tribune's article, Declassified Mind Control at McGill, by Julie Vanderpair, quote, Project MKUltra was a large-scale attempt by the CIA to research behavioral modification and the effects of certain drugs and psychological treatments on the human mind. It consisted of 144 different sub-projects related to the control of human behavior, which were carried out in 89 different institutions, including universities. The experiments within each sub-project varied in both their purpose and techniques, but many, including those undertaken at McGill, involve invasive and unethical research on unwitting human subjects." End quote. The Canadian version of Project MKUltra was called MKUltra Subproject 68, and the details, including budgeting and payment plans, was laid out in later declassified documents. You know, the first time I ever heard the term MKUltra was like two years ago when I was selling a, a cannabis strain called MKUltra. 
wait, you hadn't heard of MK no. Ultra? Only till I, I oh, wow. until I until I had the the cannabis strain that I saw and I looked it up. And what's really interesting is MK Ultra strain is a cross of um because strains have parent lineage, right? Mm-hmm. It's a cross of OG Kush and something that they called uh, government strain number one because we in urban legends, who knows if it's a legend or true, because you know truth is often stranger than fiction. Well, this story is that the CIA and FBI uh, had this secret installation in Mississippi and took all the strongest weed from around the world and created super hybrids for mind control. And um, so the, whoever created um, government strain number one named it that with that story, which I think is probably a good selling point. But MKUltra, the result, the bud, is actually known for its cerebral and hypnotic effects. So I thought that was a really, really fun uh, name for the cannabis bud because it has hypnotic effects. MKUltra. Oh, dear. Mm. Of course, it's going to be a secret installation in Mississippi. Where else could it be? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) People are creative. They are. Yeah. Some. From Mike McLaffrey, WordPress.com. MK Ultra Subproject 68 Documents. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. It can be found in Black Vault CD number four, folder 17,468. Descriptive documents can be located starting on page 11, 48, and 52, which has an interesting disclosure that Cameron was trying to figure out if he could make people heal wounds by his command using his horrific psychic driving technique that he learned from British psychiatrist William Sargent, end quote. Cameron had to commute to Montreal every week to carry out his work. He was paid $69,000 from 1957 to 1964 to carry out MK Ultra experiments at the Allen Memorial Institute. As well as the other techniques, there were specific drugs named for use on page 52 of document 17468. Looking at the effects of most of them, they were presumably some of the drugs used to paralyze the patients for extended periods of sleep. They were Artane, known as trihexyphenidyl. It is used for the treatment of Parkinson's disease or involuntary movements due to the side effects of certain psychiatric drugs, antipsychotics such as chlorpromazine and haloperidol. Anectine, also known as succinylcholine chloride. It's an adjunct to general anesthesia used to facilitate tracheal intubation and to provide skeletal muscle relaxation during surgery or mechanical ventilation. Bulbocapnine, derived from the plants Cordalis and Dicentra, it inhibits the reflex and motor activities of striated muscle. Curare, a poison found in hunting darts and arrows employed by Amazonian indigenous populations. Curare causes muscle paralysis and has been used in deep anesthesia. Uh, let's go back to that money for a second. Sure. $69,000. So that can just pass, you know, you just threw that out. In today's money, that was the equivalent of $680,000. Mm-hmm. So if you, th- like, if it wasn't for the greater good, 
you know, he had incentive to keep pushing. Sure, the limits, he did. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It's like $680,000. If you already are kind of a dick and you're getting paid that much, you're going to want to show the government results. Yeah, totally. Right? And you're going to keep pushing. Yeah. Yeah. You, so you don't think he was altruistic at all? <laughs> no. Come no. on. Well, he, he wanted that Nobel Prize, Matthew. Oh, my God. Yeah. Below this previous list of drugs is a note and a reference to our old friend, LSD-25. The note says specifically, We propose to use LSD-25 as a means of breaking down the ongoing patterns of behavior. And we'll take a break right here. One patient, Gina Blasbalg, was only 15 when she was sent to Allen Memorial Institute for treatment by the orphanage in which she was living. She did not undergo the ECT therapy that she saw some of the other patients being subjected to. When asked by the CBC's Fifth Estate in 2017 about what those other patients thought of Dr. Cameron, she said, quote, Those patients were too far gone. The ones that were not too far gone were terrified of him. We were all terrified to see him around. We didn't want to be near him. I don't think that any patient ever wanted to be close to Dr. Cameron, end quote. In her article, Brainwashing's Avatar, The Curious Career of Dr. Ewan Cameron, Harvard research scientist Rebecca Lemov wrote, quote, More than 100 ex-patients, including one in the womb whose mother was a Cameron patient, treated up to the ninth month of her pregnancy suffered more than a decade from being depatterned, psychically driven, dosed with LSD-25 barbiturates PCP and sodium amytal, forcibly kept in the sleep room, sensorily deprived, rendered incontinent, stripped of some or all of their memories, and left, in many cases, unable to live outside an institution, end quote. Lemov continued, further on in the article, quoting interviews with some of Cameron's victims. Quote, Former Cameron patient Gail Kastner interviewed recently in a Montreal old age home described suffering my electric dreams in which she sees him, Cameron, or as she also calls him, the eminent monster. One of Cameron's most famous patients, Velma Val Orlikow, who, along with her husband David, a Canadian parliamentarian, successfully sued the U.S. Central Intelligence Agency and Canadian government, describes her treatment as fueled by the fact that she would do anything to be near Cameron, the doctor she adored. His threats of withdrawal from contact with her caused her to submit to LSD trials and additional horrific experimental treatments. My mother thought Cameron was God. He could do no wrong. Then the researchers turned up that Cameron had been paid by the CIA for the mind control stuff, at which point my mother just freaked out and was demoralized for a long time, her daughter Leslie Orlikow recalls. Author Harvey Weinstein, not that Harvey Weinstein, who later wrote a book on the case, spoke to the Washington Post about seeing the effects of his father's treatment by Dr. Cameron. Quote, When you're 13 years old and you see your father, an independent, kind, smart person, become a different man before your eyes, it's impossible to accommodate that, Weinstein says. I remember one of his first visits home from the hospital. He didn't talk much, and when he did talk, it made no sense, and when he wasn't sleeping, he was drowsy. He asked us things about his parents, even though they'd been dead for years. His memory was gone. 
At night once, when I was in bed, I saw him come into my room and urinate on the floor. He didn't know where he was, end quote. My father ended up feeling guilty that he had done something to deserve this punishment. He is convinced the CIA listens to his telephone. He's ashamed and embarrassed. My mother died without seeing the end of this. It will be a tragedy if my father dies without restoring some sense of dignity to his life, end quote. There are many other survivor stories around the web if you look for them. After leaving MKUltra in 1964, Dr. Cameron scampered back across the border, returning to Albany as research professor at the Albany Medical School and director of Laboratory for Research in Psychiatry and Aging at the Veterans Administration Hospital. Donald Ewan Cameron died in 1967 of a, quote, heart seizure while mountaineering. An obituary by a friend and colleague of Dr. Cameron, Baruch Silverman, in the Canadian Medical Association Journal, painted a very contrasting picture of the psychiatrist. Quote, To anyone who knew Ewan Cameron intimately, it became obvious that here was a man who was vitally concerned with the well-being of, of men everywhere. He had a genuine disregard for national barriers, racial variations, and religious differences. He had a world perspective on social, economic, and political problems, and his creed can, I believe, be best described in the words of our own Canadian poet F.R. Scott when he says, The world is my country, the human race is my race, the spirit of man is my God, and the future of man is my heaven. End quote. According to the McGill Tribune, unsurprisingly, university presidents have not been eager to disclose or discuss this information publicly as it represents dark and troubling parts of their institution's histories. McGill's archives provide no mention of Cameron's involvement in Project MKUltra, instead focusing simply on his, quote, high reputation in the psychiatric field, end quote. The results of MKUltra, including the research done by the doctors at Ravenscrag, eventually led to the publication of the QBARC Counterintelligence Interrogation Manual from Wikipedia. QBARC was a U.S. Central Intelligence Agency cryptonym for the CIA itself. The cryptonym, QBARC, appears in the title of a 1963 CIA document, QBARC Counterintelligence Interrogation, which describes interrogation techniques including, among other things, coercive counterintelligence interrogation of resistance sources. This is the oldest manual and describes the use of abusive techniques as exemplified by two references to the use of electric shock, in addition to the use of threats and fear, sensory deprivation, and isolation. The second manual, Human Resource Exploitation Training Manual 1983, was used in at least seven U.S. training courses conducted in Latin American countries, including Honduras, between 1982 and 1987. According to a declassified 1989 report, Prepared for the Senate Intelligence Committee, the 1983 manual was developed from notes of a CIA interrogation course in Honduras. Both manuals deal exclusively with interrogation. End quote. Soon after the project's end, there were rumors and media reports with testimony of victims of Dr. Cameron's and from other hospitals explaining what had been done to them. It wasn't until 1975 when the program was declassified that the public began to get a real picture of what had gone on. Documents released in 1977 revealed that scores of unwitting subjects were experimented on as part of the MKUltra program. 
Many Canadians have still today only a vague understanding of MKUltra and had no idea that these experiments had taken place on Canadian soil until CBC's Fifth Estate aired an expose on the project in 1980. There was a bit of a blip in the media, some minor outrage, but nothing significant. The subject fell back into relative obscurity, with shows like The Fifth Estate dragging it back out into the sunlight every now and again. But still, there has been no real national outcry about the treatment of these innocent patients by Dr. Cameron, his cohorts, and those responsible for MKUltra. As the calls for compensation ramped up in the early 1980s, the Canadian government held an inquiry. In 1986, they released the Cooper Report. We mentioned it above. The report concluded, essentially absolving the Canadian government of any wrongdoing, saying these were different times. That old refrain. In the report, Frederick Grunberg, MD, FRCP, Professor, Department of Psychiatry at the University of Montreal, wrote, quote, there is no doubt that the scientific standards of the peer review committee set up by the Mental Health Division were not as rigorous as today's Medical Research Council. However, Canadian psychiatry was very much at the time in its infancy. The Allen Memorial Institute was very much its mecca, and to some extent, Dr. D.E. Cameron was its prophet. In my opinion, in spite of all the media noise, there is no evidence that psychic driving did any irreparable harm to patients who voluntarily submitted to it. The Canadian government should not bear any moral responsibility for supporting a project that was essentially therapeutic in its aims. End quote. And yes, that was a little hint of sarcasm in my voice. Were those treatments actually voluntary? When you go to see a medical professional and are told... A treatment will not only cure you, but it is harmless. Would you not tend to believe them? Doctors, especially in those days, were treated with the highest regard. Their power in society and position as experts effectively removed any real choice in treatment. They're supposed to know better, right? They're supposed to do better, right? Isn't that why they take that Hippocratic oath to do no harm? It is this kind of event that has fueled an undercurrent of mistrust in the medical profession, and no doubt plays a part in the anti-vaccination movements we have seen growing up during the COVID-19 pandemic. Yes, apparently a few bad apples can spoil the whole bunch. In 1980, a lawsuit was filed by nine patients against the CIA. After eight years of back and forth, the CIA settled with the nine Canadian patients for around 90,000 Canadian each. From an AP article published on October 4, 1988, quote, the United States government Tuesday tentatively settled a lawsuit by Canadians who claimed they suffered psychological trauma from CIA-financed mind control experiments that included doses of LSD, sources said. The lawsuit claimed $8 million in damages. The plaintiffs said they suffered from behavior modification treatments administered in the late 1950s by a Montreal psychiatrist whose research was financed covertly by the CIA. The case was scheduled to go to trial this week before U.S. District Judge John Garrett Penn, but the Justice Department attorneys tentatively have agreed to settle the case by paying the plaintiffs a total of $750,000, according to one source familiar with the case who spoke on condition of anonymity. Despite the findings in the Cooper report, after the U.S. settlement, the Canadian government begrudgingly admitted that it had financial responsibility to some of the victims but only about 80, the ones most severely affected by Dr. Cameron's depatterning. 
they would be eligible for $80,000 each, roughly the same sum as they saw in the U.S. settlement, from a New York Times article by Clyde H. Farnsworth, published on November 19, 1992. The decision, which was announced on Tuesday, represents an about-face for the government of Prime Minister Brian Mulroney. Seven years ago, when the matter came up after a number of suits were filed by victims, Ottawa refused to pay compensation. I believe that this financial assistance responds in a way that expresses the fairness and compassion Canadians expect from their government, Justice Minister Kim Campbell said in announcing the decision. One reason for the change was that the United States had already settled with some of the Canadian victims. Another reason, lawyers said, was that many of the suits filed in the 1980s were still open and promised evidence that could embarrass a government gearing up for elections. The article goes on to quote one of the 80, 55-year-old Linda MacDonald, who at the time of her interview was living here in Vancouver and was working as an employment counsellor. She said, although diagnosed with schizophrenia, she was otherwise healthy on entering the Allen Memorial Institute. But there, she, quote, spent 86 days in the sleep room and was subjected to 109 shock treatments and megadoses of barbiturates and other drugs reduced to a blank slate, end quote. People only had a certain amount of time to apply for their compensation, and some of the victims missed the deadline, leaving them out in the cold. Many have since passed away without a penny. CBC has been dogged about their coverage of the topic, releasing a made-for-TV movie called The Sleep Room in 1998, portraying the events inside Ravenscraig at Dr. Cameron's hands. In 2017, the Fifth Estate dedicated another episode to the case, highlighting new bids by survivors to get what they perceive is owed to them. On January 24, 2019, Consumer Law Group launched a class-action lawsuit against the Royal Victoria Hospital, McGill University Health Centre, the Attorney General of Canada, and the United States Attorney General on behalf of individuals who underwent depatterning treatment at the Allen Memorial Institute in Montreal, Quebec, between 1948 and 1964, using Donald Ewan Cameron's methods. As well as doctors Cameron and Hebb, there are other medical professionals named as alleged offenders by the Saga info site. There are some interesting connections to prominent people on the list. The most prominent named on the list of alleged offenders is Dr. Dmitry Pivniki, father-in-law of Brian Mulroney, the Prime Minister, who came to Canada on a fellowship in 1954 to do graduate studies at McGill University. Pivniki became senior psychiatrist at the Allen Memorial Hospital and later an assistant professor of psychiatry at McGill University. As a co-worker of Dr. Cameron, Pivniki was known to have been allegedly involved in unorthodox psychiatric experiments funded by the Central Intelligence Agency. More recently, there are revelations that the Canadian military financed Pivniki's LSD research when he was a consulting physician. The site alleges that, quote, it is believed that Brian Mulroney had all the documentation related to Dr. Pivniki purged from all McGill records. The site continues. Another alleged offender named Dr. Heinz Lehman, who in 1947 was appointed the clinical director of Montreal's Douglas Hospital and from 1971 to 75 was the chair of McGill University's Department of Psychiatry. It wasn't a criminal experiment using people as guinea pigs, 
Heinz Lehman, a psychiatric colleague of Cameron's, said in 1984 Montreal Gazette account of his contemporaries' efforts. Lehman taught at McGill and became the Allen Memorial Institute's clinical director in 1958, a position he held until 1971. It was heroic, very aggressive treatment based on a certain theory which proved to be wrong. The treatment Cameron's patients received was no secret to Lehman. I knew, and I didn't approve, he said. But not for moral reasons. I didn't believe in his theory. Lehman instead had his own theories and performed his own experiments, at times allegedly with fatal results. Another doctor alleged to have had a hand in Cameron's experiments is Dr. Peter Roper, mentioned above. Roper was a psychiatrist employed by the Royal Victoria Hospital and steadfast disciple of Dr. Ewan Cameron's psychic driving treatments, which devastated so many lives. Even after Cameron was fired from the hospital, Roper continued the same experiments. Roper blames politics in the psychiatric profession for Cameron's sudden departure under a cloud from the Allen in 1964, four years before the end of his contract. There was no farewell, no gift. He went, as it were, out the back door without any noise. All his research was tossed out, end quote. And the last of the medical professionals on the list of alleged offenders is Dr. Alan Mann. Mann was a steadfast supporter of Cameron's work and even testified on behalf of the CIA in the trial brought on by nine Canadian citizens who sued them for their illegal experiments. Dr. Cameron was the leading psychiatrist in this country in the 1950s, Dr. Mann, psychiatrist-in-chief at the Montreal General Hospital, told the court. Mann said Cameron had been a commanding presence in Canadian medicine, even though some of his practices were discontinued after his 20-year tenure at Allen Memorial. Cameron's use of drugs was, quote, within acceptable limits known at the time, Mann said. Mm. That, that old classic. Yeah. You know what I mean by that? So what happens is, you know, acceptable limits defined by whom? By those who were doing it. It's such a cop-out, right? Mm -hmm. So, hey, want to act like a tyrant? Make sure the rules, uh, uh, you know, you, if you make the rules, you can't be accused of breaking them. That's what tyrants do. Okay, I've made the rules, and now I'm going to go to by the rules that I've just created for myself. Mm -hmm. You know, hey, it was legal at the time, said the Nazi to the priest, or yeah. or hey, it's 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 in the greater good at the t at the time, said the residential school priest to the media. Right, right. Yeah. Um, F you and your acceptable limits. Honestly, like if if these people were humane, they knew they were trotting on individual rights, right? Yeah, and hurting people and. It's just this acceptable limits at the time stuff is crap. The suit by Saga also names as defendants McGill University, the CIA, and the Canadian government. Some members involved in the suit say they are not really interested in the money. The government should offer an apology and there should be recognition of the injustice that was done, said Gina Blasbalg in a recent interview. She and a few others feel the gesture of a public apology or at least some acknowledgement of wrongdoing by the government would mean a lot more than a hushed settlement. Also in 2017, famed filmmaker Errol Morris released a six-part docudrama miniseries on Netflix entitled Wormwood, based on the life of a scientist, Frank Olson, who worked for a secret government biological warfare program, the USBWL, at Fort Detrick, Maryland. It was related to MKUltra. That man died by mysterious circumstances. 
Just last year, CBC Podcast released a seven-episode podcast called Brainwash that was dedicated to the topic. Still, this isn't front-page news, but why? Perhaps the waters of the truth have been so badly muddied by the wacky theories put forth that connect MKUltra to other events, like the John Benet Ramsey case, Casey Anthony, seriously, Google it. Some of these come from sincere conspiracy nuts. Others are spread by trolls and bad actors within the alphabet organizations, like the CIA itself. There are some real kooky theories. A favorite of mine links the murders of Nicole Brown Simpson and Ron Goldman to MKUltra. Sure, OJ got off, but the theory says he definitely did it. Although he wasn't in possession of his faculties at the time, controlled by some unseen group with their own reasons for having him commit the crimes. From People.com in the Simpson case, conspiracy theorists say that the football star had been a subject of the CIA's MKUltra mind control experiment, a frequent topic of discussion among those who believe that the world is secretly under the control of a shadowy group of elites known alternately as the Illuminati and the New World Order. Adherents of this theory say that at the time of the murders, OJ was being mind controlled by the Illuminati who hoped that his trial would ignite a race war in the U.S., if you're thinking that this sounds eerily similar to the Manson murders, well, the conspiracy-minded say that it is just more proof that they're right, end quote. Thankfully, since MKUltra, there have been changes to what practices are seen as ethical in global psychiatric organizations. So, patients should not ever be used again as guinea pig for nefarious purposes. But today's mind control operations don't need drugs, hospitals, or even a doctor. All they need is you your brain, the internet, and a social media site. I found a fantastic story and scary article on humantech.com called Social Media and the Brain that explains why and how persuasive technologies like Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram are brainwashing us and manipulating us to think and behave in ways we normally would not without them. Here's an excerpt. Quote, When we use social media repeatedly, it begins to train us. Our thoughts, feelings, and motivations are shaped by powerful technology designed to keep us engaged. Without even knowing it sometimes, we learn new behaviors and warped values about what's important. And they stick, even when they're not good for us. It impacts us both online and offline. For example, when we are bombarded with notifications, it compromises our ability to attend to what is important. When endless content creates an overwhelming amount of want, we can end up addicted to seeking satisfaction, clicking and scrolling, mindlessly consuming content, often with minimal oversight from cognitive control regions of the brain. Ultimately, this behavior drains our energy. When social media forces us to constantly engage in social comparison, we're filled with negative emotions, envy, shame, anxiety, or conceit. When we're frequently exposed to negative content, fear and outrage can become the norm, eroding our sense of goodness and shared humanity. When algorithms tell us what we want to believe, we become more polarized and shared understanding across society breaks down. As of this recording, we're again seeing Russia playing with people's minds, being accused of planning false flag operations to help them in the justification of their apparently imminent invasion of Ukraine. From the Guardian newspaper, quote, 
We have information that indicates Russia has already pre-positioned a group of operatives to conduct a false flag operation in eastern Ukraine, Jen Psaki, the White House spokeswoman, said. The operatives are trained in urban warfare and using explosives to carry out acts of sabotage against Russia's own proxy forces. End quote. Scary stuff. So there's some weird stuff happening right now. They are messing with people's heads. Well, Russia has been doing it for a long time. They have a, a TV channel called Russia Today. Mm -hmm. Have you ever watched it? Yeah. It's really fascinating to see a very different perspective on world events. Yeah, it, it's extraordinarily different. Extraordinarily yeah. different to yeah. the point of, oh, you're so full of poo. Propaganda machine. Yeah. And it's, you know, I, you know I've stopped reading the news, mm -hmm. but I have, I see the news in my elevator. Um, so I've seen the Ukraine thing at silly and I've just told, I told Justin, my husband, I'm like, if this starts to affect me yeah. or us, tell me like if bombs are coming our way, mm -hmm. let me know. Otherwise I can't deal cause it's so sad. Yeah. Yeah. It's really crazy how, uh, you know, all this stuff required drugs and doctors and hospitals before, and now all it requires is the internet and TV, <laughs> you know? We we can uh, we can mess with people's heads just by in a way yeah in a way you know I you know I'm online a lot but mostly I'm just mostly posting memes and any like polit most political stuff or fear stuff I just completely scroll yeah and, and ignore well a lot of people don't though yeah that's the thing people get caught up in it and you know we see what the bots did during the American election in 2016 <laughs> yeah. that was pretty fascinating yeah but you know just to watch the divisions pop up and yeah, people need to be more critical of what they're looking at well we all do mm. me too yeah one thing before we go i'd be remiss not to mention something very obvious that ravenscrag what happened there are what inspired the writers of the canadian comedy film strange brew the movie stars the Mackenzie brothers, Bob and Doug, a couple of Canadian hosers made famous for their Great White North report on SCTV. In the film, in a poorly thought-out scam to acquire free beer, the brothers place a live mouse in an empty beer bottle in an attempt to blackmail the local beer store into giving them free Elsinore beer. But they are told to take their complaint to Elsinore Brewery's management in the imposing and creepy Elsinore Castle, clearly Ravenscrag. When they arrive to complain, they are given jobs on the bottling line inspecting for mice and bottles. The brothers later uncover and thwart a secret plan to take over the world by adulterating Elsinore beer with a mind control drug which, while rendering the consumer docile, as conceived by the evil brewmeister Smith, no doubt meant to be Dr. Cameron and masterfully played by Max von Sydow, the drugged beer also makes the consumers of the strange brew attack others when certain musical tones are played, shades of the Manchurian candidate. Smith tests this spiked beer on patients of the neighboring Royal Canadian Institute for the Mentally Insane, which is connected to the brewery by tunnels. Have you seen the movie Strange Brew? I have not. Oh, okay. So that's why you didn't write any comments no. about no. this particular thing. But... I don't think I did. It know. is, it is MK Ultra, like uh, the I whole thing. I may have seen it. Have you seen a photograph of this Ravensburger? Ravenscrag. Yeah. It's, it, it's it, a nice house. It's beautiful. <laughs> it is, it is beautiful, but it also has that, 
sort of up on a hill, scary th- up look, on a right? hill, scary castle yeah. feel to yeah. it. Yeah. 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 Maybe I should try to watch that movie. Do you think it stood the test of time? No, it hasn't, but you <laughs> no. need to watch it anyway, <laughs> okay. because uh, people see us as sort of a Bob, Bob and Doug. Bob and Doug. Which am I? I don't know. I don't know if there was a gay one. No, I think I'm, I'm, I'm more, <laughs> I think I'm more, what's his name? Mar, Mar, Rick Moranis. Rick Moranis. Okay. Yeah. 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 I guess I could be Dave Thomas. I'm, yeah. I'm good with that. I think you're more Dave. Yeah. 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 He's a funny guy. I just watched him in The Aristocrats, rewatched that, you know, paying homage to Bob Saget the other day. Have you seen The Aristocrats? You Mm. need to watch more movies. Oh, I watched the new um, Marvel one yesterday, The Eternals. Mm -hmm. And I watched the new uh, Ghostbusters. I like the new Ghostbusters. With the kids? Yeah. Yeah, it was good. Yeah, it was really good. Yeah. I like how they didn't reference that one that happened a couple of years ago. Yeah. Yeah, there's no reference to that I, anywhere. I never saw this one, but it's not in the Justin uh, downloaded these, so we watched them. It was really good. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's quite good. And that's it for Dark Poutine episode two hundred and four. Mind control at Ravenscrag, the MK Ultra Experiments in Canada. That's quite a title. Right. <laughs> it's unwieldy, but Mind Control and Ravenscrag. Yeah. <laughs> On to some voicemails. That's right. It's time for voicemails. You can leave us a message at one 327 5786 or 1-877-D-A-R-K-P-T-N. We'd love to hear from you. Let's see who called us this week. All right. Here's our first voicemail. Oh my God. Hey, you guys. Hey, you guys. Big fan here. Been listening for like three years. Um, I've been meaning to call since you guys covered the uh, Greyhound story. I know that must have been difficult. Um, I just wanted to quickly share that uh, I knew a guy from the Yukon who uh, was on that bus and ended up being interviewed uh, for CBC. And I remember him sharing with an acquaintance friend of ours how how difficult it was um, to be on there. So uh, that story has stayed with me as a Canadian who has lived across this country in many places, taken the Greyhound for countless trips. It's one of those stories that really, really hits a chord in the heart, doesn't it? So, yeah, I just wanted to say thank you for covering that so gracefully um, and so passionately. I really, really appreciated that one. <clears throat> I love you guys both. I <laughs> love Dark Putin. And go take a major frozen poo in your hat because it's so cold on the East Coast right now. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> well, there you go. A major frozen poo in her hat. <laughs> I like her energy. Yeah, she didn't tell us her name, but that's okay. It's Persephone. Persephone? Yeah. Oh, you've made up a name for her. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Persephone is uh, not only the goddess of death, but the angel, like a angel of flowers too. So she's a flowery death goddess. I think she, I, I, she sounds cool enough that she would <laughs> like that description. And I can tell you, we're not taking the Greyhound anymore because they're not in Canada anymore. To heck with that Canadian country. <laughs> let's, let's, let's get the Greyhound buses out of here. But anyway... <laughs> Uh, here is, uh, our second voicemail. (laughs) 
Hello, Mike and Matt and Steve. Uh, my name is Dawn Haas. I'm from the tiny little town of Jarvis, Ontario. I've been listening to your podcast, well, since the beginning. Absolutely love them. Have just finished your book, Mike. I think it's absolutely phenomenal. Uh, I did leave you a message on Facebook telling you how Max Haynes what used to be my favorite author because he does the true crime short series as well. And, uh, well, he's been replaced. So I look forward to the next book. I hope there's one coming out. Um, I just want to say I love the way that you uh, really shine a light on the victims and not so much on the jerks that are causing the problem. And, uh, yeah, so, I don't know, I look forward to more podcasts. They make my car ride a whole lot better. And, of course, oh, shit, you're not. Have a great day. So go shit in your hat. Have a great day. <laughs> so fantastic. after you've you've done shitting in your hat <clears throat> and pulling it down over our ears, we should have a great day. I don't know how great a day I would have after pooping on my hat. We seem to have a lot of listeners that are sort of from that area of Ontario. She's from Jarvis. Mm-hmm. Yeah, is that so west though? Yeah, it is essentially. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So Jarvis is right near the Six Nations Reserve. And she, she mentioned that, uh, I have replaced Max Haynes as, wow, that's, that's, that's big, big, big shoes to fill, Max Haynes. Who's Max Haynes? Oh, for fuck's sake. <laughs> He's the, uh, true crime author I've spoken about numerous times on this show. So usually when you're talking, it's in one ear out the other. Yeah, right. I'm well aware <laughs> of that. Anyway, it keeps me humble. Apparently. I still haven't finished your book. <laughs> Fuck you. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> it's true. It's sad, but true. Uh, I like it. I just haven't got to oh, it. Oh, I like it. No, I do. I just haven't gotten yeah, to it. It's just not important. <laughs> no, it is important. But I'm, you've gotten all the accolades. I'm like, you don't need any more accolades. Oh, I don't. <laughs> Anyway, such a dick. let's move on to the next one because uh, I don't want to say anything dumb. Hi, Mike and Matt. Um, it's Natasha. I just wanted to say that I really appreciated your guys' you know, commentary at the end of the last episode. Um, it's really good to hear about other people going through the process of healing um, from, you know, sexual assault and rape and I'm currently going through EMDR therapy to help deal with all of my trauma and flashbacks and um, deal with all of that stuff before I start a family and um, I also ended up reporting it to the RCMP and they've been working on it over the last year or so and um yeah, I just wanted to say that I really appreciate it. Have a good day. Go shit in your hat. Bye. <laughs> wow. Uh, thank you so much. Yeah, it, EMDR, I have done a little bit of that. Do you know what that is, Matthew? No. It's eye movement desensit- desensitization okay. and reprocessing therapy. So it's a form of trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy 
uh, specifically developed for reducing the power of traumatic memories. So a trained therapist will guide you to think about trauma while moving your eyes back and forth. Over time, this will help your brain to reprocess memories so that they no longer cause as much pain. And interestingly, it apparently, and I'm not quite sure because I'm not a, a psychologist, maybe a psychologist can enlighten us on this. Um, what it does is it connects you to that vagus nerve that makes, <laughs> that essentially makes, uh, makes you be, have that vagus nerve that controls the different functions in your body that okay. one of, one of which is anxiety. Okay. So it's, it's like, uh, the way that my therapist described it, it's like you're an animal on the, uh, uh savannah right. in Africa right. and looking back and forth whilst feeling nervous mm. and upset helps you because you are actually doing something physical at the same time, which it's interesting. interesting. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know if that's an accurate I, description of it. I've never heard but of it before. Yeah. It's pretty fascinating. My I, head was going to EDM. Right. I thought it was nonsense at first and yeah. there's tapping and all kinds of different, different therapies that I have looked into and they actually do help. Whatever works. Whatever works. Right. right. Like not everything's going to work for everyone. And talk therapy is tough when it comes to PTSD because through talk therapy, you're actually really reliving right. over and over and over again, these things and they re-injure you okay. as you're talking about them. So, um, EMDR is meant to be one of these therapies that can assist with healing rather than re-injuring. Okay. Yeah. I just push it down. You just, <laughs> I'm going to end up being a sniper on the roof of a McDonald's. Either that or of some serious, uh, cancerous issues. Oh, nice. Well, <laughs> oh, so, so you'd rather take people out than be taken out yourself. No. Okay. <laughs> you heard it first here on Dark Routine. Matthew admits thoughts of sniping people from a McDonald's rooftop. Oh boy. Uh, here's our last voicemail. We've got four this week. Hey, Mike and Reba. Oh, shit, I mean, Matthew, what a slip. This is Mike, your west of the Fraser River neighbor and host of Brew Crime Podcast. Just want to say cheers to both of you for producing a great victim-focused podcast. We all look forward to tuning in each and every week. And I hope you are both holding up okay right now with the world on fire as it is. It was awesome meeting you, Mike, at the live show in the before times, and I hope you too reprise that live show one day in the future when, you know, things get a little more normal. So keep up the great work, and please take a poop in your toque. Cheers. Well, thanks, Mike Garson. Yes, the Brew Crime Podcast. So I guess we don't have to do a promo this week because Mike just did one for himself. It's fine. It's I, good. I want you to cut that out. What? He called me Reba. I'm not cutting that Just out. Joking. I actually, Just you know kidding. what? Let's hear that again. Uh, no, stop it. Hey, Mike and Reba. Oh, shit. I mean, Matthew. What? <laughs> I've made myself a total target. Well, you deserve it. It's okay. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, that's it for voicemails. That's it for this week's voicemails. Again, you can leave us one at one 327 5786 or... 1877 DARKPTN. We'd love to hear from you.
even if it is just to say hi and to tell us to go shit in our hats. If you're stumped for what to chat with us about, a quick story is welcome. Let's move on to Patreon. Patreon. We've got a couple new patrons this week. First up, from Creston, British Columbia, we have Andreas Camp. Andreas Camp. Andreas, I spent a lot of time in Creston. Oh, yeah, that's right, because that's where one of your grow-ops yeah, one of, one of my first early cannabis jobs a couple of years ago. So That's right, yeah. It was in Creston. Oh, it, have you been out there? I have not it's been to Creston. It's in the Creston Valley. It's so beautiful. Yeah, I've heard that it's quite nice. It's we did, so beautiful. You did an episode about that. Yes, that, we did. That horrible, horrible, yeah, horrible. About the, that was like, honestly, the weirdest, grossest one that I ever listened to. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah it's pretty nasty. Because I kind of know, I know, I know the small town as well. Or mm-hmm. practically, it's a village, really. Leonard Earl Nelson, yeah, I think, was yeah, his so name. Yeah, so just, just like seeing, like imagining that happen in the little town of Creston was incredible. But thank you for being a Patreon yes. from Creston. Thank you very much. And what does Andreas Camp do there in Creston, British Columbia? He p- either works at the, at the cannabis facility or he works at that pub with the uh hotel above it which is the only one in town the pub with the hotel above yeah, it. yeah it's called frankie's or johnny's or somethingies someone's namey yeah well let's not advertise for them it's okay <laughs> next up uh we have a new patron wendy rashid and wendy i don't know where wendy is from i'm not entirely sure where she's from matthew you don't know where wendy rashid is from no i don't uh, where is the movie, uh, the TV show Glee? Um, um, <laughs> How would I know where Glee takes place? Well, that she's from Glee Town. She's from Glee Town, and what does she, what's she doing there in Glee Town? She's Matthew? the head of the Glee Club. She's the head of the Glee Club. Yep, of course she is. Yeah, um, that's exciting. Thank you for being a Patreon. <laughs> Thank you so much. We talk, we see Wendy often on the Facebook. Yes, we do. Yeah, yeah. We like it. Yeah. Wendy's nice. Um, yeah, that's it for Patreon. And it doesn't look like we have any donut money donors this week. That's okay. Uh, we still love you. What's that? Oh, Matthew is doing some like subliminal MK Ultra stuff. I wanted some donuts this week. Yeah, Matthew, uh, he turned down my offer of an Nanaimo bar. So a little bit of insider information. Matthew is making a face. Does not like Nanaimo bars. They're the Reba McIntyre of desserts. What? <laughs> well, not. No, you prefer butter tarts. They're not quite that bad, actually. They're more like the Rikisha vase of, of desserts. You like butter tarts. Butter tarts are the best. I like butter tarts, too. I, I've, have you ever seen how many you can shove in your mouth at once? Butter tarts? Yeah. Five. I almost choked to death. <laughs> Don't choke to death on <laughs> butter tarts. <laughs> Thank you to all our patrons and Donut Money donors, past and present, for your generosity. It helps to keep the show going. You can become a patron of Dark Poutine at patreon.com slash darkpoutine. For a one-time donation, you can send us Donut Money via PayPal using our email address, darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. If you don't already subscribe to the show, it would mean a lot if you did. You can easily find Dark Poutine on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. If you haven't gotten yours yet, get my book, Murder, Madness, and Mayhem. It's available via, via an order link on the Dark Poutine website. And speaking of our website, 
Check out darkpoutine.com for show notes and other cool stuff. Please take the time to give a like or a follow to Dark Poutine on Facebook and Instagram. Most importantly, thank you for listening and tell your friends about us. Word of mouth is a powerful thing. Until we return, don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple. Bye-bye.